0: Hello, and welcome to the 40 Drinks Podcast. Most people start feeling an ick as they approach age 40, like one or more aspects of their life doesn't quite fit anymore, and they don't know what to do about it. I'm Stephanie McLaughlin, and oh boy, have I been there and made a mess of that. (laughs) But having 40 drinks with 40 people over the course of a year helped me to escape the influence of that ick. On this podcast, I welcome you to tap into my stories and experience, as well as those of my guests, to help you emerge from the ick and maybe even avoid some of the mistakes we made along the way. Today my guest is Jem Fuller, an Australian native who led a colorful nomadic life for much of his twenties and thirties until it was time to grow up, settle down, and get a job so he could take care of his family. But the longer he was in corporate life, and the higher he climbed on the ladder, the further he moved away from his core values, which led him to a pretty classic midlife crisis. This is the story of how he got there, got through it, and built the life that suits him perfectly. Hey, Jem, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really happy to have you here.
1: Yeah, hey, Steph. I'm really to have been asked onto your show. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. It's not often that I have a real life fire dancer with me on the show. So I'm very excited to meet you and to hear a little bit about what fire dancing is and why it's in your bio.
1: Yeah fire dancing for me was and then throughout the years of being a father once a year at the winter solstice the kids primary school would ask me to get the fire dancing toys out and you know wow all the kids with them but fire dancing for me started back in the 90s when i was a hippie traveling around india and it's basically you have a stick with kevlar on each end and you put flammable (laughs) liquid on it kerosene or something (laughs) light it up and spin it around or then you've got things called poise which are the same things but on the ends of ropes and you spin them Mm -hmm. around and you can start to create beautiful dance and patterns with this fire and it looks amazing because the fire is spinning around really quickly um, and creates beautiful patterns and it's dangerous because you can burn yourself so people go ooh and ah and i ended up Um, doing this in Taiwan when I was living in Taiwan, working as a kindergarten teacher and I ended up as my side hustle. My wife and I got paid to dance with fire outside department stores in Taipei in Taiwan. (laughs) So that's how I became a fire dancer.
0: Well, that's the wildest story I've heard all week and we haven't even started yet. (laughs) (laughs) There's plenty of those. (laughs) This is gonna be fun. I'm so excited. We're off to a great start. Um... Jim, why don't we start by telling me a little bit of your formative adult years. How'd you get to your late 30s and who were you at that point?
1: Mm, a pretty standard kind of upbringing in a middle class suburb in Melbourne, Australia. I was born overseas, but raised in Australia. My father was from England and we had been overseas a few times as kids. So I knew there was a big wide world out there. And that's kind of an important preface to it. But then in the last year of high school, my closest friend died on his motorbike and it shook me. It really shook me. That was halfway through the year, right on my 18th birthday, actually. I was sitting oh. sitting next to him. He had his accident five days before my 18th birthday. I was sitting next to him while he was in a coma on my 18th birthday. And then five days later, the decision was made to switch off the machines and let him go. So that was understandably... Um, horrible (laughs) for me at the age of 18. And when I finished high school, I just wanted to get as far away as possible from everything. So I got on a plane and flew to the other side of the world and spent a year or so working and traveling as an 18 year old, which I think they call a gap year now. My 19 year old son is about to take off overseas and do the same thing. And now they call it a gap year between university. (laughs) Yeah. But back then it was just like, Running away to travel around the world. (laughs) Slacking off. (laughs) And I fell in love with it. I really did. My other passion at the time was acting, and I was desperate to be a Hollywood superstar. And I came home and I actually got into the National Institute of Dramatic Art here in Australia, which is where Mel Gibson went and Judy Davis went and Kate Blanchett went. And I actually got in, which was a feat unto itself and i was 20 and i thought
0: yeah i'm
1: gonna be a famous actor <laughs> convincing myself that it was for the art but really it was just all ego anyway so i i was acting for a while through my early 20s but i had this calling to keep traveling and to travel to far and wild places i wanted to really get off the beaten track and then just through my 20s the travel overtook the passion for acting and travel just became my main thing so all through my 20s and early 30s i was either living in a in a strange and wonderful culture somewhere, or I was earning money somewhere else to then keep traveling. So that was the first kind of adult chapters of my life.
0: And where did you meet your wife?
1: I uh, met my wife actually in a performance. She was at Victorian College of the Arts as a contemporary dancer. And I was at the National Institute of Dramatic Art as an actor. And she graduated in the time when i got kicked out i didn't finish i got kicked out and and we met in a performance so we both were cast into a modern contemporary dance performance so that's how we met and that was way before we fell in love i kept traveling and then came back and then in my late 20s we fell in love and got married and kept traveling i said if you want to be with me that's great but i'm not done traveling around the world so we had a two and a half year working honeymoon that's when we were living in taiwan teaching kindergarten kids and twirling fire together. Then we came home, got married, had kids and had to settle down and find a way to support them.
0: And what did that look like?
1: I didn't know what to do. I was in my early 30s. I was now a fresh father. We had a baby uh, and I had no career. I had no qualifications. I had no work history. I'd been bumming around the world. (laughs) And I was like, oh, crikey's, what am I going to do?
0: Let's also remember that at that point in time, because you and I are contemporaries, at that point in time, there was no gig economy. There was no No. hanging up your own shingle. There was no just becoming an influencer. At that point in time, you really had been slacking off for a bunch of years. And and it was still the period in time where you needed a career, you needed a job, you needed somebody to think you were credible and skilled. And so that must have been a heck of a transition
1: yeah it was and i have always been apart from this chapter that i'm about to talk about i have always been very alternative so even to the point of being anti-establishment for a while there i was full punk living in squats in london and then when i was traveling around asia for many years on my own barefoot dreadlocked smoking weed and sitting around the fire playing my guitar you know so that's the foundation i'm very alternative And so when I got a job, I didn't know what to do. And I got a job with a travel company because I'd been traveling so much. So I I learned how to be a travel consultant and Mm -hmm. book other people on their trips. And I had to wear a suit and tie. And my family and friends were looking at me going, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I had a suit and tie on and I did that for eight years and I actually did it Really well, and sure. climbed the corporate ladder, quote unquote, and ended up in a senior leadership position with 150 staff and turning over a lot of money in my section of this international company that I'd bought into. And so, two things happened. One, I learned a lot about leadership and coaching and cool stuff. The other is that, with the inherent drive to grow net profit growth month on month on month that all corporate leaders face, I found myself being pushed far away from my values and really becoming. Deeply unhappy, but surface level Instagram feed, like everything's great. You know, mm-hmm. I've got a beautiful wife and we've got two boys and we built our house down by the beach, but inside really increasingly more and more unhappy, which led to the the midlife crisis.
0: Yeah. yeah. So we'll get to that in a minute, but before we get to the midlife crisis and before the midlife crisis hit you, you turned 40.
1: I did turn 40.
0: You did. And uh, I'm a little jealous I wasn't invited And I don't even know the details yet, but let's hear a little bit about your 40th birthday.
1: Yeah. Let me start by saying that when I was turning 50, I had a lot of people saying, you have got to do your 40th all over again. (laughs) And then I booked it. We had booked to have a festival for my 50th. Mm -hmm. We were going to have a big, massive festival. um, And COVID got in the way. Two years in a row, COVID got in the way. So then I got over it and went, no, not happening. But the 40th, A bit of context, I come from a social group where we organize events at festivals as well. And I don't know if any of you or your listeners have heard of Burning Man, but a lot of my crew go to Burning Man Festival and set up there, do stuff there. And we do similar sort of stuff here in Australia. And so we love putting on festivals and parties and, you know, we've got all the gear and and that kind of thing. So for my 40th, one of my friends who's heavily involved in that scene said, let's do it. Let's, Let's create an event. But it was in the city we had a city party so we hired out a nightclub and we promised the nightclub owner it was multi-leveled we promised the nightclub owner that we'd bring enough people that it'd be worth their while to just let us have the place and they'll make so much money over the bar that it'll be worth their while and so then I don't know how it happened but it went viral my friend probably had something to do with that but it went viral and we ended up having about I'm guessing 350 to 450 people come to my party and I only knew about 100 of them (laughs) maybe maybe 200 of them. But it was a great night. The crazy thing was that before the night really got even underway, everyone was getting excited and people were turning up and coming up and wanting to wish me happy birthday and give me a gift and were giving me all sorts of illicit substances to help flavor the mood. (laughs) (laughs) So by the time the party kind of got underway, I was flying, to be honest. (laughs) <laughs> it's quite quite funny, and the party was. There was a mates rock band, and then there were DJs, some of the best DJs around at the time. All of my friends secretly had organised a flash mob, so we're in the middle of the nightclub, and there's you know it's packed with people, and we're all on the dance floor, and everyone's just having an absolute ball, and then all of a sudden. Someone grabs me, they grab me and lift me and they carry me up into the corner of this nightclub and there was a stage and a throne and they sat me in this throne and put a bloody crown on my head and gave me a scepter and I'm like, oh no, you're embarrassing me, what are you doing? And then the dance floor, there was about a hundred of them that had been training, practicing and rehearsing. And and about a hundred of them all went into choreography together for this flash mob and they flash mobbed me. And the other couple of hundred people in the room who didn't even know whose 40th it was (laughs) that were like, what is going on? This is crazy. So that kind of stuff was going on. I knew it had gone viral when I came up to the, there was this huddle of four people, these young, cool looking people. Oh, by the way, it was a full dress up. So it was rock stars and techno tarts it was called so and-
0: rock stars and techno <laughs> charts
1: yeah yeah so it was full dress ups and and quite hilarious I think rocky horror picture show meets Led Zeppelin kind of thing.
0: I'm there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 And so I knew it had gone viral when I came up to these four people and I kind of huddled in with them. I didn't know who they were and I huddled in, we're on the dance floor and we're just having fun and, you know, clinking glasses and stuff. And they were going, whose party is this? And one guy goes, I don't know. It's some dude's 40th. And I'm like, yeah, right. Okay, cool. And we just kind of kept partying when I didn't tell them that it was my birthday party. Um, I thought, all right, it's gone viral. And we went until the nightclub kicked us out at 6 in the morning and then we went to a mate's house and we kept going for another couple of days.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a good party.
1: <laughs> it was a good party. It got spoken about for a long time. Well, like I said, you know, when my 50th turned up, yeah, people were like, can we do that again?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's a good day. Yeah. I'm envious. I haven't had one of those nights in, well, you know decades, but those are yeah, yeah. all time. Good for you. Yeah, Good thank for you. you.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. And the idea of the 50th was great as well. We were going to have a big festival. Right. We wanted an excuse. We I don't know about where you were through COVID, but here in Victoria, Australia, so the state that I live in, we were the most locked down over the longest period of time globally. Mm-hmm. Our local state government really, really took the bull by the horns and (laughs) wanted to just try and keep it zero here, which was silly because it obviously came through here as well, but they just kind of really took it to the nth degree and had us locked up for a long time.
0: Yeah, we weren't, quite as tightly locked down and for a much shorter time still it was my 50th birthday came and went through covid like you said you weren't able to do a whole lot and then even the next summer we thought oh it's better and then it was still still, lots of people really uncomfortable and not confident yet in being in places with lots of people so
1: yeah that's Uh, right yeah 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 yeah. yeah. my 50th was very different i live on a farm on a little surf town and so we snuck a handful of people up to the farm when they weren't supposed to come. But we, um, we, you know, we were a bit sneaky and, and they came up and one of my mates, who's a DJ, set up in my lounge room and 12 of us danced danced around like there was 400
0: of us. Nice. Nice. My husband threw me a tiny little surprise party. It was just my family, my brothers and their families, his sister and her family, our parents, and then one friend and his wife—he's my third brother, essentially—and uh, it's the middle of the summer, so we had lobster and uh, French fries, my favorite meal. So beautiful. Um, so yeah, it was a great. It was, but again, right in the middle of COVID. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to your 40th birthday party. You're a completely different person than you had been through your twenties and thirties. You're a Mm. a corporate man, you're a husband, you're a dad, and you have this great 40th birthday. And then for the next couple of years, things start shifting for you. Let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Mm. As I look back and reflect, it was obviously building up. It's not like everything went from being peachy and rosy one day and then overnight everything mm-hmm. had fallen apart yep. there were factors of it that were building up and one primary factor to be honest that had been building up since i was probably about six years old was this subconscious belief that i wasn't good enough mm-hmm. subconscious mm-hmm. you know if you asked me up front are you good enough i want to go, yeah i'm great i'm good i've got what right. i need blah 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 but there was a limiting belief in the background that i'm not enough and that plays out in interesting ways We are interesting cats, us humans. We're very complex. Anyway, so that was in the background, but leading up to it. So when was that? When did we turn 40?
0: It would have been 2011.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the year before, my father had had a brain tumor and was Mm -hmm. dying. And I'm the eldest of four kids. We were all living around the world. So our youngest brother was living in Vancouver and my sister was living somewhere in Asia working. And my other brother was in Europe and I was in Australia. Mm -hmm. And when dad was dying, we all decided to come home and nurse him through palliative care at home and be there for Mum. My youngest brother and his wife moved home from Canada and said to my mum, we're going to come and live with you after dad dies so that we can look after you. So dad died in the December. And then three months later or four months later, my youngest brother died on his motorbike in a head-on collision. Oh, So that's my best friend when I was 18. And then my youngest brother, when I was... 39, died on his oh. motorbike. So it was a really, really massive blow to the family. It was oh, the most God. horrible experience I've ever been through. And look, I know we all are going to experience losing loved ones. It's a part of life. I mm-hmm. get that. But when you lose a parent, it kind of makes sense. They're the Correct. generation above. And even though my dad yeah. was only 67 when he died of his brain tumor, he was still my dad. So it kind of, yeah, it made sense. Yeah. It's the
0: natural order of things right? that your parents go before you. Yes. Right.
1: Right, so you kind of go, okay, you know, but then out of the blue, and we knew it was coming, we had a year to prepare for it, we were all sitting bedside and it was actually quite a beautiful passing, Mm -hmm. but then to get the phone call saying your brother died tonight on his motorbike instantly um, was shocking, really shocking. So that had happened. And you're navigating that kind of grief and to the best way anyone knows how. And then the 40th, but also building up in this, my marriage had been very, very secretly unhappy. There'd been Mm -hmm. my own anxieties. I'd put all of my own anxieties into one very vulnerable place of my life, which was in sexual intimacy. And my Mm -hmm. anxiety started to play out there to the point where in the later years of my marriage, I was sexually dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. which is something people don't want to talk about but I'm happy to talk about because I think we should talk about these things but it was a very secret and shameful torture mm-hmm. and I was so embarrassed I didn't tell anyone obviously my wife knew but she didn't know how to deal with it and she didn't know how to help me and I didn't know how to help myself and that was building up to being the end of our marriage that part and it all kind of accumulated at the same time so the marriage was falling apart I lost my job, which meant I wasn't earning the great money I was earning in the house that we just built. I couldn't afford anymore, so I had to lose the house. And in the separation, I gave all of my belongings to my then wife saying, I don't want to fight over stuff, so you can have it all. So there I was, early 40s, and we went straight into week on, week off with the kids. We had a bunch of debt. After we sold the house, we had a bunch of debt, and I took all the debt. I didn't want her to be burdened with the debt, so I gave her the stuff. I took the debt. And I said, look, the last thing I want to do is fight over anything. Can we just go 50-50 with the kids? And we did amicably. We went 50-50. We're still friends to this day, by the way, mm-hmm. because we've been doing shared care week on, week off for the last you know, nine or 10 years. And so, yeah, I left. There I, there I was with my two boys and we found this rental property in our little town where we live. And I moved into the rental property and I had my guitar and my surfboard and I had the boys and their surfboards. And we moved into this house and looked around this empty house and went, Oh, whoops. We've got nothing. Like crockery, I didn't realize how much stuff goes into a house functioning until I moved into this empty shell of a house with nothing, no crockery, no cutlery, no beds, no linen, no washing machine, no microwave, no TV, no couches, no nothing. You know? Right. And I was like, right. oh, boys, we're camping on the floor until I sort this out. We have down here, it's called Surf Coast Free Stuff. It's a Facebook mm-hmm. group. Yep. And essentially, the group was set up so that people can recycle stuff they don't want and just say, hey, I'm getting rid of this TV. Does anyone want it for free? So there's no money that changes hands on this site. But primarily, the site is for people to give away stuff. And I just went on there and reverse engineered it. I just went on and said, hi, help, single dad, starting all over again. I've got nothing. I need absolutely anything that you've got that you don't need. I need it. And so we drove around with a trailer for a few days and completely filled this house. It was beautifully hodgepodge, you know, like mismatching bowls and plates and mismatching linen and everything mismatching, but all for free and all secondhand.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things you said to me was, you don't realize what losing everything means until you walk into that apartment with your guitar and your surfboards and go, uh-oh. Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. We actually don't have anything, you know. Well, wow. I mean, we had each other, which was amazing. The part of it that I didn't mention was pr- just prior to losing my job, when I was still employed in a senior leadership position, my boss, the state manager, had engaged an external coach to come in and run a weekend of leadership development. So there was six of us senior leaders in a hotel for a weekend with this coach doing stuff. And I was blown away by what he was doing. I just absolutely loved it. It was my first proper introduction to behavioral profiling and NLP was a human behavior expert Mm -hmm. and I was just blown away by it. He was like a magician within half a day. He understood us better than we understood ourselves. And I just found it fascinating because I've always been fascinated in humans and human behavior and culture and all of this stuff. And I said to him on the second day on the lunch break, I'm like, mate, I love what you do, what do you do for a job? And he said, this, I do this. And I was like, oh, wow. I'd love to do this. But that was at the time when I was still building the house, just finishing building the house. And I said, look, I'm pretty financially committed. Do you mind if I ask how much money you earn? And he told me and my jaw dropped visibly, just went, what? You earn that (laughs) much money? I was like, half of that is fine for me. Thank you. So I went home. I was still married at the time. And I went home to my wife and said, about a year from now, I'm going to leave this company and I'm going to go and start my own coaching practice. And she went, oh, okay, whatever. Can you just not do it right now? Because we're financially committed. And I said, no, 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 in about a year. So the universe heard me. The universe's idea on time is very different to ours. Yes, the universe went-
0: heard you and it chuckled.
1: Yeah, it chuckled. It said, oh,
0: that's cute, Jim. Yeah, that's yeah. cute.
1: Yeah, are you on out? How about now? <laughs> <laughs> Two months later, I got unceremoniously turfed. Yes, unfairly dismissed from the company that I was at. And everyone said to me, just go and get another leadership job. Just go and get another corporate job. And I said, nope. Nope, I'm taking this as a sign. So I took the small handshake that I got from the company and I spent it invested in studying coaching and human behavioral profiling and all the stuff. Became a qualified coach and started my coaching practice and was in the deep end, really in the deep end. And you know, it's funny because young coaches come to me now and say, Jem, how have you become so successful as a coach? And can you give me some advice and yada, yada. And then I'm recounting the story and they were like, oh wow, you're fully committed. I sold my house so that I could stay on this journey. The reason I had to sell my house is because I wasn't earning enough money as a coach at the start and I was getting more and more into debt. And the only way forward was to sell the house. And they went, wow, you sold your house just so that you could be on this path. And I'm like, yep.
0: Yeah. You knew you were committed because it felt so good. You knew it was right.
1: I knew it was the right path to go on. I had to Mm -hmm. back myself and I'm so glad I did. My Mm -hmm. life now is ridiculously wonderful. And at the same time as all of this midlife, you and I were talking about this before, I see it as a midlife awakening. I see it as a midlife opportunity. And the fundamental shift for me personally, internally with my relationship with myself is that I became conscious of that background belief that up until then had been subconscious. I became aware, oh, wow, I've been running a belief that I'm not enough.
0: It's funny that you went there because... As soon as we got to a break, I was going to go all the way back to that and say, Tell me about that. <clears throat> what I want to know is so when we have subconscious beliefs and we have limiting beliefs, most of the time we don't know. Mm. We just go on our merry way. And like you said, you could say verbally and consciously, of course, I'm enough. And of course, I'm good enough. And of course, I can do this. You could say all of those things. Tell me where that unconscious belief reared its head. Tell me how it affected you. Where did it bubble up in your life before you had acknowledged it? And then I want to talk Mm. about how you acknowledged it.
1: Yeah. So the most painful place And at the time, the most shameful and embarrassing place that it reared its head was in my sexual anxiety, which got culminated in in me having anxiety attacks and breaking to sweats and not being able to function. But it also showed up in many other areas of my life. For example, if I was starting to become really successful at something like my career, I'd sabotage it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know why I was sabotaging it. But I was sabotaging it because deep down, I believed I didn't deserve it. And we will create evidence in our life to match our beliefs. You know, and we will distort the evidence from around us to match our beliefs. So if you, mm-hmm. for example, if you have a belief life is tough. You will experience a tough life. Your perception of life will be tough because you believe it to be so. If you believe that people are generally lovely, like that's one of my beliefs. I don't even know if that's true. I've only met 0.00001% of the earth's population. How do I know if everyone's lovely? I don't. But because I believe that people are generally lovely, I just keep meeting lovely people. Right. I walk down the street and smile and people smile back at me. So our beliefs really do play into our version of whatever reality is. Our perception of reality is very much flavored by our beliefs. And if something's out of alignment with our belief, we will distort whatever we need to do to match our belief. So I I would sabotage things. It's a little bit touchy to say this because I don't mean any disrespect at all. I say this with love, but because I believed that I wasn't enough, I attracted a woman to me. I fell in love with a woman who pointed out to me pretty much on a daily basis where I wasn't good enough. She would say to me all the time, why aren't you more like him? Why aren't you better at that? And I don't blame her for that. I created that. Of I course. attracted that. I fell in love with that because mm-hmm. it was a reflection back to me that, that matched my belief. And so when this belief went from being subconscious to becoming conscious which by the way happened in one night in a North American Indian sweat lodge on Australian Aboriginal Indigenous sacred land in a circle with men from a men's circle that I'd been sitting in, in a very, very hot sweat. And we were in the pitch black inside the sweat lodge, naked in the mud. And the sweat was so hot and went on for so long that I had an out-of-body experience. And I became my five-year-old self. and I was flying around in the cosmos, laughing and happy and joyful. And it was that night that I realized, and I came home and had this crazy dream about a serpent. I don't know if we've got time to talk about it, but essentially what yes, we do. What ha- we do. <laughs> yes.
0: Hi, we'll get back to that story in just a moment. This is where I usually interrupt to ask you to look down at your phone and either rate or share the podcast. And I would still love for you to do that. But today, I want to tell you about a two-page guide I created that will help you diagnose whether you or someone you love is suffering from the ick. It's not always so clear-cut, so this guide outlines the symptoms and red flags associated with the ick. You can download it from my website, 40drinks.com ick. Spell out the word 40, so that's 40drinks.com I-C-K. All right. Back to Jem, who's going to tell us the story of that sweat lodge.
1: So you want to hear the story of the sweat lodge? I want to
0: hear the story, (laughs) Jem. This is the good stuff.
1: Okay. okay. (laughs) Now for, for your listeners, I am not a kind of faith believer. I'm not religious. I grew up in a Christian household, but I'm not out there, you know, believing in stuff willy nilly. I studied physics and maths in high school. I want evidence. I love science. I want to know Mm -hmm. stuff. I'm not kind of the burning incense and singing kumbaya kind of guy. But this was my experience of what happened. I went into this sweat lodge and I can only describe it as an out of body experience because I wasn't aware of my body anymore, but I was aware that I was light and, and it felt like i was five years old and everything was hysterical and funny and i was flying around in the sky in the cosmos and then finally the other men had left the sweat and i'd been in there with a guide so there was another man who understood the process of north american indian sweat lodges and he was the one guiding us with the chanting and all the stuff we were doing so call it heat exhaustion call it whatever you want i had this experience um, i was lying there naked in the mud. And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Jem, it's time to leave the sweat. And so I crawled out of the sweat lodge and sat around the fire. And all the other men had been out there for quite some time. And it was really interesting. I found it very funny, but these other men were standing up and they were naming themselves very earnestly. For them, it was very earnest and sincere. But the names they were giving themselves were strong names, like one man stood up and said, I am standing bare. And the other man said, I am soaring eagle. And I was sitting there and I was five years old and I just found it all really funny. And then there was this body of water nearby. It was a lake and we were all really hot. So one by one, the men were walking down to bathe and wash off in the lake. This is in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And I ran down into the lake like a five-year-old and I dove into the cold water. Then I jumped up out of the water and my naming just kind of came out I hadn't planned it and I just jumped up out of the water and said I am naked wet boy (laughs) 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 and everyone just started laughing like it just broke the seriousness you know yeah it broke the seriousness a metaphor for can we just get over ourselves yeah Cause we take ourselves so bloody seriously it's like can we just laugh at ourselves a little bit you know yeah. anyway so that was that then i went home and at the time my boys were young i think one and three or two and four somewhere around there yeah and my mum had been babysitting them while i went to sweat lodge and then i came home and mum left and i went to sleep and i was having this amazing dream completely lucid completely vivid and there was this serpent that was living in the core of me like this big serpent Mm -hmm. and in the dream i had to try and get the serpent out of me so i was reaching my hands down inside my throat and grabbing this serpent and pulling this serpent out and it was strong it wasn't aggressive it was just strong But it wanted to be inside me so every time i'd put it down on the ground it would just slither back down into my core again i even tried one time i pulled it out and i put it down and i was blocking my mouth so it couldn't slither back in my mouth and it slithered up my leg and up my anus and back up into the core of me like it was completely clear anyway halfway through this dream in real life one of my kids was stirring in their bed and they needed settling and i knew that my work in the dream wasn't done yet it felt like i can't finish this dream yet so i got up out of bed kind of stayed half asleep went in settled my infant got them back to sleep went back to bed and got and went back into the dream back to sleep and back into the dream to finish the work and eventually there was a group of faceless men around me like brothers who had mm-hmm. to help i needed help i couldn't do it on my own and that was an important part of the dream mm-hmm. i needed the help of community and these men helped me get this serpent out and we found a way to keep it out and it was a bit technical anyway in the morning when i woke up straight away i knew what the dream was and what the serpent was this is the moment when the belief went from being subconscious to conscious and I sat bolt upright in my bed and I went that serpent was the belief that I'm not enough that I'm not good enough and it's been living in my core most of my life I was like wow and it's time to be gone of that belief and I'm going to need some help and it's going to, it's not going to be easy, but I need to change that belief. And then these books, you know, how books just show up in your life randomly. Someone mm-hmm. goes, oh, I'll read this book. And then another book comes and another book comes three or four books in a row. were all the kind of Joe Dispenza, how to evolve your brain type books, how to change your wiring and your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to work and, and got on with changing my life.
0: Wow. That's big stuff. One of the things I'm so curious about, and I really like to dig into in these conversations is something that I've started creating a character almost, and I call it the ick. A lot of times as people approach that age 40 time period it could be 35 to 45 whatever but they start feeling like an ick like like something in their life doesn't feel right but they don't quite know what and they don't quite know how to fix it and you just have chafing like you're wearing something that's the wrong size and what you're describing here is making your way through the ick in a Mm. very you know, specific and intentional way. I mean, you Mm. went digging for it. And that's what I'm so curious about because a lot of these stories and a lot of the people that I talk to, every story is unique. And yet there's so many commonalities. There's so much that we have to unlearn in this period of time. It's like this period of time, we're ready to unlearn some of the stuff that we were taught or told. It's the era where you unlearn all the things you should do somebody else told you you should do so for you it's like oh well you met a girl well you know you should get serious and you should settle down and you should get a job and you should put on a suit and it Mm. just took you so far away from your true self that you were able to do it for a decade but much beyond that and you were breaking down in all kinds of different ways
1: yeah it's so true and You know, what I love about what you were just saying is that as different as we all are and the actual stories, you know, there's so many different stories, but underneath it all, we've got so much in common, us humans. And I really do love that. We have the same kind of core fears when we're little. What if I'm not enough for mum and dad? What if I'm not loved? What if I'm isolated? And these are survival fears and we all have them. We have the same joys and love you know we all would do anything for our children when i say we all
0: of course, generally
1: speaking we are wired to just love and adore our children and put them first we all need food and shelter we all need air and water we have things in common this is a little bit of a tangent but it's a story that exemplifies what you were saying about the things we have in common in 1998 i was on a bus in remote north pakistan in the mountains in north pakistan And the timing, just to put this into the context of historical timing, this is when Osama bin Laden, so this is years before Mm 9-11, Osama bin Laden or somebody had had blown up a U.S. embassy in Africa. Uh And so the U.S. government at the time wanted to retaliate and they were sending cruise missiles into the northwestern frontier province, which is some kind of tribal lands between Pakistan and Afghanistan in the mountains there. And I'd been traveling through there and now I was just a little bit out of that area. So I wasn't where the bombs were going, the missiles, but I was close by and I was on a bus and an American backpacker got stoned. He lived, but he had rocks thrown at him at one of the campsites, one of the T-stops. Anyway, I was thinking, and I was chatting with him saying, man, that's pretty unfair. He goes, dude, I didn't even vote for the government that's in at the moment. I don't agree with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But because he had an American accent, the locals were throwing stones at him. And I thought that's a bit rough. Anyway, I was chatting with this university student, a local mountain Pakistani man. And he spoke English because he was studying at university. And he was a devout Muslim and grew up culturally, religiously, spiritually, geographically, completely differently to me. Mm-hmm. But we were sitting and I was wanting to connect with him and understand. I was curious. I've always been a curious traveler. And we were talking and he said one thing to me that always stuck with me. He said, Jem, if we cut your skin here and we cut my skin here, we have the same colored blood, mm-hmm. we are the same, you and me. He said that to me and it always stuck with me. He said, we're not as different as you think we are, you know? And he was a young man. He was like a 21 year old yeah. and it was just so wise. And he's right. We've got so much in common. And it's frustrating, isn't it, to watch these people who have been sucked into the division that's been manipulated and exacerbated with social media and watching people who have different opinions on things, which is fine. It's good that we have different opinions, but they're just shouting at each other and trying to cancel each other on Twitter. And, and it's, it's just also ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, oh, people, you're not helping yeah. humanity move forward like that, you know?
0: Right, right. And for my part, what I'm trying to do here with the podcast and with these conversations is to sort of demystify this transition that is Mm. apparently pretty common, this transition sometime between 35 and 45. And my story is that when I turned 40, I was in a place in my life where I didn't want to have the big party. It just felt icky to me because Mm. I was single, never married. I had recently another awful relationship had fallen apart, and forty just felt like to me the time when somebody else should throw you the party, like your boyfriend or your husband. Or you should. When I was twenty five, I threw myself a rockin' yeah. birthday party, and it was awesome. Yeah. It was a lot like your forty festival, where we took over a club in Boston. But at forty, it all felt like the wedding I had never had. So I decided instead to have forty drinks with forty people in 40 different places and each drink had some thematic connection to my friend or our relationship Uh huh. and i did this because i thought well this is ridiculous and yeah. i am ridiculous and for m- most of my life had tried to suppress my ridiculosity and was coming to the point where i was like you know screw it i am ridiculous so let's do this
1: yeah great
0: so I went about this and the whole project took me 13 months. And what happened was it changed me Mm. and my life was completely different at the end of the 40 drinks than it was at the beginning. And so that transition to me was a surprise. It, It took me unawares and upon reflection and after the whole thing, it's like, well, that was crazy that that happened that way. And then, oh, well, actually these kinds of transitions happen to all kinds of people and maybe even many or most people. And yet it's not something that we know about except for the shorthand of the midlife crisis, which most people say tongue-in-cheek and sort of goofily. But there's something here that we go through and so my quest really is in talking to people and digging through these transitions again that piece where every story is unique but a lot of the transitions are real similar few episodes ago i talked to a man martin who had a childhood trauma he was 10 and his brother was five and his brother got hit by a school bus and died five days later and so he realized And not until he was an adult and much, much later, he realized that in that moment, he became a people pleaser. He could never let his parents be as unhappy or as sad as they were when they lost his brother. And Mm. so it was his job to make sure they were happy, right? So that's the same kind of thing that gets stuck somewhere Mm. in our lizard brain, just like your, I'm not good enough got stuck and Mm. it was probably something again you were probably six because you know if you saw yourself at five and you were having so much fun do you know what the impetus for the belief is yeah where did it come from oh tell me There
1: was oh well when i was six so my father who i love completely just to preface this and and before he died we were completely in love reconciled in love as father and son however it was um all sorts of interesting shades of a relationship for me growing up with him as a father. And he would discipline us in quite a controlled way. Normally he would discipline us by smacking our hand. So if we were in trouble, he would get angry and shout at us. And then we had to hold our hand out and he would give us like a high five. But as a little kid, it stung and it was painful and it was demeaning and blah, blah, blah. But this one time when I was six, he actually lost his temper. He actually properly lost his temper and he Kind of beat me up a little bit he threw me around the bedroom like he picked me up and threw me into walls and stuff and i could see in his eyes that he'd lost control he'd actually lost it mm-hmm. and they were the early days of his alcoholism it wasn't too much of a problem then his his alcoholism got worse as he got older but it, it scared the bejesus out of me and petrified me mm-hmm. and it was in that moment And I can only know this now by looking back and having done a lot of work on myself, a lot of introspection and counseling and psychology. Mm -hmm. But I look back to that moment and I go, wow, it's completely understandable that that six-year-old boy, his world of innocence was broken because the man on the pedestal, the man who I adored and honored and revered and admired, hurt me and scared Mm me. And Mm -hmm. so it's understandable that a six-year-old would go, I'm not good enough for him. If I was good enough, he wouldn't have done that to me. It must have so it must have mm-hmm. been my fault. So I'm mm-hmm. not good enough. And that's where it started.
0: Yeah. Oh, heavy stuff. And children are so delicate and they're so open that obviously that was a bad day for your dad and he lost control, but it's things like that commonplace everyday occurrences yeah. that can lodge these little thoughts yeah. in your very undeveloped childhood baby brain Yeah. that they just get... They're like calloused over over time, right? And we don't even know they're there because they just got calloused over through, you know, childhood and teenhood. And 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 next thing you know, they're still. Yeah.
1: And they become self-fulfilling prophecies because if you start to believe something, then you distort the information from the world around you to match your belief, which becomes evidence. And so then when I'm in school and I'm in a springboard diving competition and the whole school's watching and I do a double somersault and I don't do it right and I land on my back and the whole school is laughing at me, then that's evidence, right? So then I'm walking away going subconsciously. I knew I wasn't good enough. I knew I wasn't good enough. And sometimes even consciously. You know the way we talk to ourselves we look at ourselves in the mirror when we're upset with ourselves and we cuss at ourselves abusively horribly Mm -hmm. like you wouldn't talk Mm -hmm. to anyone else the way you talk to yourself and so it becomes this this self-fulfilling prophecy which is interesting the good news the part of it all that i've found in the last 10 years that i find really wonderful and forms a large part of the coaching work that i do with leaders is that we can flip that and we can consciously brainwash ourselves. There are ways that we can create new beliefs, unlimiting beliefs on repetition, and we can wire this stuff neurologically using the benefits of the fact that we have a plastic brain that can change and does change, using some of the technologies of understanding that when we're in a dopamine peak state and we fire a particular neural sequence it wires together faster so we can get quite clever about how we do this but we can pick a belief like i am enough and i'm exactly who i'm supposed to be and i do deserve love and happiness and success and abundance and you can say that over and over and over and over and over and over again like i've been doing for 10 years and you start to believe it Yeah, And then you start to believe it. And then you start to distort the information from the world around you to match your beliefs. And your eyes open up to opportunities that weren't there before. And you start to create this life. Like, it's amazing. When I started to believe that I am enough just the way I am, and I do deserve love and happiness, blah, blah, blah. When I started to believe that, that's when my partner Talia showed up in my life, not before. We didn't fall in love and then I got convinced that I must be good enough because this gorgeous, amazing woman is falling in love with me. It didn't happen that way around. It happened the other way around. The other way. I learned to love myself first. I learned to go, wow, I am enough. Yep. And then she showed up as evidence to me. And she loves me absolutely and completely and utterly. All my bits and bobs. She thinks I'm more than enough. You know, my bald patch and my belly and my whatever, all the stuff I used to look in the mirror and go, oh, yeah, She loves it all. It's really fascinating the way life changes when you change that internal relationship.
0: It's interesting that you say that because the very same thing happened with my husband, Patrick, and I always call him my reward. He yeah. is my reward for never settling. He is my reward for doing my work. He is my yeah. reward for getting myself organized.
1: Yeah, I love um, that. I really like that, my yeah. reward. Yeah, that's what yeah. it feels like. It like is. That's, that's the reward I got for doing all the work and yeah. <laughs> learning to love myself properly, and not settling, and and having the courage to follow "quote unquote" the path of the heart. Because I know yeah. that gets overused that saying, but to follow your gut, to be true yeah. to yourself, to live a life where your values aligned, and for doing that, because it's not always easy, is it? You know, there are days when no. you wake up and it's it's not always easy. But if you can have the the grit and um, the self love to keep showing up values aligned and with integrity, then you get a reward. It's like, oh,
0: wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's beautiful. I like that. Well, you get a reward in that you create and you build a life that fits you perfectly.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's the reward. I think as you were talking, I was thinking it's messier though. It's messier. When you're living in should, when you're living in somebody else's authority and somebody else guiding you on all the things you should do to be a success or to have a successful life or, you know, whatever. And there are parents, there are teachers, there are our bosses, our mentors, and by and large, <clears throat> they want well for us, but should is kind of easy because you just follow somebody else's plan. Yeah. But as with you, and there have been others that I've talked to as well, it's like, your whole life breaks down. If you don't listen to that gut or the little tiny voice inside your head that you discount most of the time, Mm. if you don't listen to those things, like those are your opportunities to do it a little bit cleaner. But if you're not going to pay attention, then the universe is going to send you something you can't avoid, (laughs) uh, like a major breakdown in life like yours. And then it gets a little messier because you have to make up your own rules. You have to know your own heart. You have to find your intuition. You have to find your gut and hone it and learn it and tune into it. And so it's not as easy as, well, geez, you've got a, a girlfriend, you got a wife, you should buy the house so you can have the kids. Yeah. Right? That's all pretty like uh, 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 robotic yeah. and easy. This is not as easy, but no. it's way more fulfilling.
1: Way more fulfilling. And you're right. It's messy. There's no yeah. prescription. There's no one mm-hmm. telling you do this, then do this, then do, then do this. And you've got to make a lot of mistakes mm-hmm. and there's no one to blame. When you make a mistake, you can't turn around and say, you told me to go and get that job. No, no, no. You're owning your stuff, you know, right. and you're right though. It is way more fulfilling for me. Life just keeps getting easier. Yeah. Just keeps getting easier. Now that's not to say that there's not painful events that happen, you know, people It's not that to you say love- that you
0: don't work hard.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. It's not to say that I don't work hard. I mean, in terms of my relationship with life, in terms of my perspective, it just keeps getting easier. Yeah. You know, and I I think that's great. I think that's exciting. That's wonderful. Yesterday, actually, a mate of mine and I, we run this day for year eight students. So they're 13 to 14 year old kids. Mm -hmm. And we run a day on mindfulness. What is mindfulness and how can they put it into their lives and how it can help them? Anyway, we were running this day and we were catching up, me and my mate, haven't seen him for a while. And we were talking about how life gets easier. And he goes, what do you mean by that? What, what does it look like? And I said, well, just everything from doing the stuff you don't want to do to the big stuff, when there's pain, you know, like some, something happens and it's painful or the love stuff or the relationship stuff or the work stuff, everything is getting easier. Mm -hmm. And he said, how, how is it getting easier? And I said, I think it's because of the habitual practices that have become daily for me, like meditation, Mm -hmm. affirmation, perspective, introspection, contemplation, the cold shower at the end, the exercise, the moderation, You know, just all the little one percenters. It's not like there's just one thing that all of a sudden makes everything easier. It's each day, the little 1% healthy habits. For example, one of my healthy habits that I've created, I call them pause moments. And it's very literally throughout the day, it's become habitual for me to be, I'll finish something and I'm about to do something else and I'll pause, take a breath, (sighs) just notice what I can notice. You know, notice my heart rate, notice my breathing, notice what I can see or hear. Just notice three to five seconds and then carry on. Mm-hmm. Small, tiny, simple. People go, that can't change your life. And he's like, well, it's one of those little one percenters that are with consistency over time actually does. You know, Well, I net, love that yeah. one
0: yeah. because it brings you into the present. It brings yeah. you into the present moment. It brings you into your, your body. I think I said this in a recent episode, but my husband was – anxiety about work, it was something, and he was projecting and he was, oh, what if this and what if that? And and the advice I gave him at that moment, and it was just sort of divine, it kind of came out of my mouth, but he said it was the best advice. I said, just stay in your shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Just stay right here where your shoes are. Yeah. I love that your pause moment, because I don't do it the same way you do, but there are bits and pieces of the being present and not having your brain thrown about into the future or the potential future or the past or the, just coming here and being here for a minute before you dive into the next thing. It actually, it is magical.
1: Ah, it is. It is. Because, you know, most of, I want to say all of our suffering is in our thinking, the way we're thinking about something, and it's usually in the past or the future. When we drop into this present moment right here, right now, and we just become completely present, it's like, everything's actually all right in this moment right now. Right. um, Mostly. Sometimes you might be experiencing pain. I don't know, my back's twinged and I've got back pain right now. But even still, when you can become completely present to that pain, the suffering dissipates. Pain is a sensation. But the mm-hmm. suffering is in the way we think about things. And quite often, the suffering is in the gap between our expectation and reality. Yes. <laughs> That's where we're doing the suffering. So, those little pause moments for me are a little recalibration back to reality. Mm-hmm. Just going, oh, everything is what it is right now. I'm not mm-hmm. going to argue with that. <sighs> and now, what am I going to do moving forwards? You know?
0: Yeah. Interesting how. Simple it is, and yet how profound. Mm, mm. I love that you said your friends or people you're talking to, you know, how could it be? Oh, sorry, it actually is profound, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Try it for just a little while and see what happens.
1: Yeah. Mm. I got the idea from this amazing keynote speaker at a conference that I was at in 2014. I was at the Global Mindful Leader Forum, and this keynote speaker was a meditation teacher from the States, and he was he was short of stature, but just emanated this big, beautiful Dalai Lama type presence when he came on, onto the stage. And the whole auditorium went completely silent and he was projected up on this big screen behind him. And you could hear a pin drop, thousands of people just silent. And he did his keynote. And two of the things that he said that landed, and it was just the right time for me to hear him say these things because I actually took them and implemented them into my life. You know, so often we hear, an inspirational keynote speaker, and we go, Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go do that. And we don't go do right. that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but this time it was the right time for me to hear. And he said two things he said one was, Know the work, he was talking about meditation, know the work, but do the work. Mm-hmm. And that really, I felt called out in that moment because I'd kind of tinkered with meditation for years traveling around the world and sitting as a bit of a hippie in India and blah, blah, blah. I'd kind of played around with it, but I didn't have a consistent practice. Mm -hmm. And from that day on, I started my consistent practice. But the second thing that he said was just two words. He said, pause often, pause often. And I thought, what does he mean by that? I thought, I'm just going to take that literally. I'm just going to literally create a habit And I did it through habit association. So I had a little sticky note on the coffee machine. I had a little sticky note on my laptop, a little sticky note next to the toothbrush, just saying pause. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, the habits link and you don't need the sticky note. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, yeah, that's, I started doing that in 2014 and yeah, it's the most simple things are quite often the most profound,
0: huh? Truth. That Mm. is the truth. Mm. Jim, I have a sense that you and I could probably go down many rabbit holes and talk for hours on end, but I think maybe this is an interesting spot for us to stop today. What do you think?
1: That feels right.
0: I agree. I agree. Before we go, last question. Someone who found themselves in a similar position to you when you were 41 or 42, they were... In a relationship that wasn't working, they were not feeling great about themselves, life wasn't feeling like it fit. What advice would you give to someone in that position?
1: You're only halfway. The second half of your life is in front of you and you have the opportunity in front of you to live your best life. So have the courage to do what you feel is the right thing to do. And um, yeah, go.
0: Perfect. Thanks for joining me today, Jim. Thanks so much for having me on, Steph. Thanks so much for listening today. I absolutely loved this conversation. I am so in agreement with much of what Jem was talking about in the second half of our conversation. I love his idea of brainwashing yourself into more positive, productive beliefs. Repeat after me. I am enough, and I am exactly who I am supposed to be, and I do deserve love and happiness and success and abundance. Now, you can do like Jem did and put sticky notes around the house and at work to remind you. For me, I have a little mantra that I say when I see a certain time on the clock. I always tend to see ones, 1-11, 11-11, both the morning and the evening. For some reason, I see those specific times quite often. And if you're into all the woo stuff, you'll have heard that when you see the same time on the clock or the same nubber patterns or any kind of pattern really, that it's a message from the angels. And so in the past, I looked up what ones meant from an angel message standpoint, and I found out that it's something like, you know, the angels are listening, so be sure you're thinking the thoughts that you want them to manifest, meaning make sure you're thinking positive, productive thoughts. That's how I interpreted it. Um, I Kind of interpreted it as like the moment before a camera flash goes off. Now, if I know somebody's taking a picture, I will always compose myself and smile. I've always done that since I was a little kid. So I interpret these ones as a moment to figuratively sort of say cheese so that when the angels figuratively take that picture, I've got my best foot forward. I know it's a little silly, especially if you don't believe in angels, but I think it's Kind of like being like 10 or 11 and hedging your bets with Santa, like, I'll be good just in case the fat man does bring presents. <laughs> and besides, no matter what the impetus, as Jem told us, we have the capacity to brainwash ourselves for good. So who cares what I'm using to instigate my camera-ready beliefs? So I've been doing this for years, and it's the same mantra every time I see the numbers. Same thing every time. Here it is. Health, success fulfillment and joy. And then mentally I'll do a little jump or kick or something like what a cheerleader would do at the end of the cheer, like a little mental, like, whoop. and sometimes I even physically do a little kick or a lean or something. So why this particular mantra for me? Well, I've said before that I am a follower of Mike Dooley and the concept of thoughts become things. And I've even said before that I'd like for Mike to be a guest on the show. So let's just say that out loud again, shall we? <laughs> Something like 15 years ago, I went to a Mike Dooley seminar. And at one point in the seminar, he told us, he, he, we took a little break. He said, you know, write down in our workbooks what we wanted. And he gave us like 60 seconds and everyone was scratching away and writing, you know, frenetically what they wanted. And, and I had written only three words and I was convinced I was doing the exercise wrong. I wrote, to be happy. And then when Mike came back, he started asking what people had written down in their workbooks and people's hands shot up in the air. And I, however, was shrinking in my chair. Sure, I had done it completely wrong. So people started reading their paragraphs and paragraphs of what they wanted, everything they could get down in 60 seconds. And that's when Mike went into his discussion of the cursed house, meaning the more specific you are about what you're dreaming of and trying to manifest, the harder the universe has to work to get it for you, and sort of the more room for error for you know not actually succeeding in that manis- manifestation. But by being what I thought was too vague, I had actually given the universe a much bigger runway for fulfilling my wish. It didn't have to look a certain way, and surely the universe would already know what kinds of things would make me happy. I didn't have to detail it down to a size and a color. So you may recall, especially if you've listened to episode 43, that 15 years ago, things were not going pretty great for me on pretty much any level. So back to that mantra I've been using for years now, health. As you may know, I've had health issues for about six years and all the trite things you've heard about having your health being the only thing you need are actually true. (laughs) So I want to be healthy first and foremost. Success. I own a small business, and I want it to be successful, and I want to be successful at it. Fulfillment. And whether fulfillment comes from my work or from other parts of my life, I don't prescribe. I just want to feel that fulfillment. And joy. Listen, if I'm ordering up things, I'm going to do one better than happy. I want joy. So, I feel a little naked having shared that with you. I'm not sure I've ever told anyone about my little mantra and here I am sharing it with the world. (laughs) Go big, I guess. But by using the clock as a trigger, that's something that's helped me maintain that tiny 1% habit for many, many years. Is it responsible for where I am now? I wouldn't say that on its own it is, but it surely has contributed to a positive outlook and to keeping my goals in mind consistently. So, What time or number patterns do you see out in the world? And how could you use them as a trigger for adding positivity into your life? How could you use them to brainwash yourself? Drop me an email or comment on social. I want to hear it. All right. Do you remember Wise from season one? Well, next week, you're going to meet his nephew, Anthony J. Gonzalez. We had a lot to talk about, so you might need to pack a lunch next week, but I think you're going to enjoy meeting him. I'll see you then. The 40 Drinks podcast is produced and presented by Savoie Fair Marketing Communications.